Father, as we gather here this morning and we look to your word, the words of David as he wrote this psalm, God, we are uh, reminded or made aware that, that there are a couple of ways that, that communication about you goes forth. God, in, in one sense, you, have, you speak about yourself through creation. God, as we look to the world, to nature, to created things, to the order of the universe, to the order of life on this planet, to the cycles of spring and fall, uh, spring and summer and fall and winter, God, as we look to, to planting and harvest and all these different things, and we see in them an order, a, a divine design. God, as we look to our bodies and, and the way that they function and the way that they grow, God, we, we recognize that someone made us, that we were designed and created. We think about the fine-tuning of the universe and, and how if, if things were just a little bit different in one way or the other, life on planet Earth could not exist. And we see in all of these things that there is a, the, the fingerprints of God on creation. But God, what the psalmist tells us is that there is enough light to see that. There is enough understanding and enough um, instruction from nature to lead us to those conclusions but there's not enough for us to be saved. There's not enough light in nature to tell us of our sin. There's not enough light in nature to, to proclaim the gospel to us, God. There's not enough light in creation and in the orderliness, God, for us to uh, understand that there's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to get the, the story of redemption and how Christ was born of a virgin and, and lived a perfect life and how he died a death that would take the place of his people, that their sins would be placed on him, that he would be punished in their place, God, that your wrath would be exhausted in him so that all who take refuge in Christ can have eternal life. We can't learn that from nature. And so your law comes in showing us our sin. Your, your revelation comes teaching and reproving and preaching and pointing us to Christ. And so God, David speaks of this other kind of, of revelation, this special revelation, and how you have spoken through your words specifically, giving us the gospel, giving us the story of redemption, declaring our need and our sin and our, the remedy for that sin in Christ. And God, we thank you that you have done that. We thank you for the truth, the honest spoken truth, God. We thank you that you, the God who requires that we speak the truth in love has already from ages past spoken truth and love to us through the apostles and prophets. And it's been recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. And we rejoice, oh God, today that we have this. But God, we confess that we don't love your word as we ought to. We confess that we too often sit in judgment over your word and not in, in submission under your word. And God, we live in a culture, in a world that sets in judgment over your word. And we found it to be a comfortable place because we don't see them being swept away in judgment, God. We, we see people vaunting themselves proudly against the truth and declaring that the scriptures are immoral and that they have a higher level of morality than even the scriptures themselves teach. And God, too often we are enticed and, and, and uh, intoxicated by these kinds of foolish babblings. And God, we, we stand in judgment too often over your word rather than submitting to it. And so we confess that today. And we, we pray that like Solomon, we would have the hearing heart. God, that heart that listens, that hears the word, but the heart that, that does the word as well. And so God, work in us that we would see nature and rejoice in its beauty and what it points to, but that we would hear special revelation, that we would be pricked and, and convicted, that our hearts would be changed, that you would reveal sin, that you would help us to repent, cause us to be born again. God, save us and bring us to the place that we need to be. That you would help those who are saved to continue to walk and strive for holiness. 
and that we would do all these things for your glory, that you would build up this church, God, that you would make us uh, a clear and true image, God, that we would reflect your glory to our children and to the next generation and to the world around us. And God, through us, that you would, and through special revelation, that you would restrain evil in the world as you send us out to advocate for justice, for righteousness, for peace, Lord, for what is good and, and what amounts to human flourishing. Help us, God, to do that, to hear your mandate, to hear your word, God, and to, to be listeners and doers of that word. And we ask it today in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's have our ushers come forward this morning for our offering. We each week or each month really have been choosing a missionary and trying to focus and, and pray for that missionary and the work that, that they're doing. And uh, this month, I, I just want us to to pray for ourselves, really, uh, that we would begin to adopt a, a missionary mindset wherever we are. God has called all of us to make disciples, and we're, we're seeing how that involves us in, in helping one another grow as disciples, but it also does involve the work of evangelism. Wherever you are, you have an opportunity with those that you come in contact with, your friends and family, those that you work with, to share the gospel with them. And I want to pray that the Lord would help us in, in that work, help us to see that, that that's part of our responsibility. So pray with me this morning. Lord, we, we come this morning and we do pray that you, would be help, that you would help us in this great task that you've given us to do. God, we know your word tells us that no one will ever believe the gospel unless they hear the gospel, and no one will ever hear the gospel unless those who are sent proclaim this, this good news. Lord, we, we see that all of us are sent by you to proclaim the gospel. God, I, I pray this morning that you'd remove the fear that many of us have. Lord, we know that the fear of man lays a snare. I, I pray that we would be more concerned about glorifying you and be more concerned about the, the well-being and the good of, of our loved ones than we are for our own personal reputation or uh, that, than we are with avoiding any kind of conflict or, or, or any kind of discomfort that sharing the gospel might bring. Lord, I pray that as, as a church, you, you would just raise up many of us who, who would just be faithful in this task. I, I pray that we at Union Baptist Church would just be known as, as really a soul-winning church, a church that's concerned to share the gospel and that is, that is regularly leading other people to faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to be that kind of church. God, we do pray for this offering this morning. We pray that you would bless it, that you would use it. But, but Lord, as we give and we seek to be faithful in supporting missionaries, I, I pray that you wouldn't allow that to be, in, in our mind, the end of our obligation. Just that we support others who uh, are paid to share the gospel. Lord, help us see that it's our responsibility right where we're at in everyday life. And uh, we just pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, take your Bibles this morning and uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. We're going to be wrapping up our series uh, this summer. We've been doing a series on our, on our mission statement. And uh, I just want to reiterate, why, why are we doing that? Why are we talking about a mission statement? Uh, and, and a few reasons. One, we, I think, need a mission statement because we just want to be clear about what we want to be as a church. Uh, we, we want to be clear about where we're going and the, the direction that we're, 
we're heading. And, and often if we don't have a clear vision, it's easy, it's easy to miss that. And we've preached through this before and we've talked about our mission statement before. So why are we coming back to it now? We're coming back to it now because uh, we're, we're not where we need to be. And, and the, the way to really grow in this is, is only if we are thinking about it, if we've got that clear vision and we're reminding ourselves of, of what we need to be. We're, we're not there yet. When we talk about a mission statement or a purpose statement, uh, we're not saying, hey, we've arrived. This is who we are. We're saying this is who, by God's grace, we'd like to be. This is, this is who we think we ought to be according to Scripture as, as a church. And so we've, we've said and talked about the fact that we exist as a church, meaning corporately and, and each one of us individually. We exist for the glory of God. We exist to glorify God by growing disciples of Jesus Christ in community. So we've talked about each one of those points uh, over the past uh, few weeks. We, we've talked about the fact that it is and it ought to be our purpose to glorify God. We, we made a couple key points on that. One, that ought to be our supreme goal. That, that glorifying God is preeminent over everything else. We, we have a lot of goals in life. We have a lot of priorities. We have a lot of desires in our life. But we as Christians, every last one of us, not just preachers or deacons or certain people in the church, every last one of us, our supreme goal in life ought to be to glorify God. And, and that ought to be the driving passion of our of our hearts for probably all of us. I, I don't know that any of us could say really that we've arrived at that. That's why we keep preaching. it. That's why we keep talking about it. There's not one person here who could say, I, I supremely all the time glorify God in all that I do. So it's a goal. It's a mark that we're going toward. And then we said also about that, that it really permeates everything that we do. It's, it's chief. It's the, the primary purpose in our life, but that it, it really permeates everything that we do. Sometimes when we talk about glorifying God, we, we think about church and we think about worship songs and we think about, you know, that kind of thing. Just, just strictly speaking, sort of religious acts. But, but no, the, the, the call to glorify God, Paul says, to, to whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. So everything you do ought to be for the glory of God. The way that you parent, the way that you, you interact with your spouse, the way that you deal with conflict, the way that you, uh, that, that you are an employee, or an employer, the, the way that you go about everything, the, the primary purpose in whatever you do ought to be to glorify God. Then we, we talked about uh, we, the fact that we glorify God really by what the Bible says, being a disciple of Jesus Christ or becoming like Jesus. Uh, we're, we're called to be like Jesus. That's the way that we glorify God. The more we're like Jesus, the more glory we bring to God. And so that involves every last one of us in this process we call sanctification in which we are becoming more and more like Jesus all the time. It's a goal that we never reach in this life, but it's a goal that we ought to always be, be pursuing. And we talked about how that, that, that process is, is a very challenging and difficult process personally. Right To be like Jesus means there are certain things about ourselves that we've got to crucify. In fact, that's what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, not, not just when Jesus says that, he's not just saying, hey, if you want to be labeled as a Christian or take, you know, you know, take some kind of religious stance, he's saying, if you want to follow me, in other words, you want to be like me, what you're going to have to do is take up your cross daily and follow me. 
you're going to have to die to some things that are very important to you, some things that feel very natural to you. You're going to have to die to them, and it's a daily death. You have to take up your cross daily in order to follow Him. Paul uses a similar yet different analogy of putting to death the deeds of, of the body. Uh, the Christian life is pictured then as this ongoing process of killing off things that don't look like Jesus. That ain't easy. It's a, it's a grueling and difficult process. Making disciples of Jesus, then, I think we saw requires that we be in, in a community in which we speak the truth in love to, to one another. Look, if, I, if I'm going to become more like Jesus, and it involves this kind of death to things that are very important and near to me, and, and I've got to lay those aside, uh, then, then one of the things I need is I need brothers and sisters who are going to come alongside of me and help me in that process. They're going to encourage me when I'm weak, uh, and, and, and they're going to, as we saw last week, admonish me when I begin to stray in a loving way, in a kind way, not with pride, not, not to beat me over the head or make me feel bad about myself, but, but in a way that as parents would admonish children because they love them, then I'm going to need to be admonished sometimes. I, I will not learn to become like Jesus unless I have faithful, loving brothers and sisters encouraging me when I'm weak and admonishing me when I'm wrong. We see passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.12. I didn't read this last week, but I want to read it this week just to reiterate this, this point. We ask you, brothers, when he talks to brothers, he's talking about the church. We ask you, brothers, Christians, members of, of the church in, in Thessalonica, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So he's saying, hey, there, there are people in your church that God has called to lead you and they admonish you and you ought to esteem them highly because of the work, not because they're some great people, but because of the work that God has given to them and you ought to love them. But he doesn't end there. We, we saw last week that admonishing one another is not just a work of pastors. He, he says this, and we urge you brothers, the, the, the members of the congregation, brothers and sisters at Thessalonica, we urge you to admonish the idols. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. That's the kind of community that we want where everyone is a pastor. Everyone is doing the work of encouraging. Everyone is doing the work of admonishing. Everyone is doing the work of exhorting. That's what a New Testament church would be like. Too often in, in the modern church, we've accepted this idea that that's the work of pastors. They admonish, they help, they encourage, they exhort, and we all just receive it. No, no, no. All of us are be, to be doing this work of admonishing and, and helping. Well, what we want to see today, I don't want to preach last week's sermon again, uh, although I might be tempted to do so, but what we want to see today is that the Bible is a totally sufficient guide for all of life. You see, because this is why I'm going here, because if we're in that kind of community, we need to have what, what some organizations call community standards, right? If we're going to be admonishing and holding each other accountable to be like Jesus, well, what, what are our community standards? Is it my opinion? Is it, is it what I like and what I prefer? Is it what I think is true? No, no, no. The, the, the sufficient guide for us for all of life is the Bible. This is the standard. So, so it doesn't matter really what Andrew thinks. What does Andrew think about the matter? It, it matters not at all, except to the degree that I'm seeking to help you see what the Bible clearly says. 
Okay? And, and it doesn't matter what you think unless you are bringing the Word of God to bear. The Bible is a totally sufficient guide for all of life. And here's where our passage comes in this morning. We'll be in different places, but we're going to begin here. 2 Timothy 3.16. If, if you all kept records of which passages I go to most frequently, this would be up there. It may not be the, the, the number one, but it would be up there. And with good purpose. Because the Word of God is so important, and this is such a clear text about the Word of God. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now let's just stop, and, and we've talked a lot about this verse, so hopefully these things you're like, yeah, we know, you've already said this a hundred times, but, but, but maybe me saying this again will help you begin to have a better view of what the Bible is all about. L look at some of the qualities or some of the things that this says about the Bible. First of all, it says that the Bible's inspired. It is breathed out by God, and that's just a, an expression that helps us understand that what he's making the point is that the Word of God, the, the Bible, is God's Word that it is spoken by him. It's breathed out by him. You breathe when you speak, and, and God spoke the words of the Bible so that what the words that we have in Scripture are God's words. It's inspired by God. This implies then, doesn't it, then the, the truthfulness and trustworthiness of Scripture. If the Bible really is the very words of God, then it's truthful. If God is God, God cannot lie and God cannot be mistaken. Then if he has truly spoken in his word, his words are true. We can trust them. They're truthful and they're trustworthy. The other attribute that we see here of Scripture really is implied is that then it would be authoritative. If the Bible really is the word of God, then it's the authority. Right? God's the creator. He's the one who owns us. He, he's created us. More than that, if we're Christians, he, we, he owns us doubly. He created us and He's redeemed us as well. And so, so we belong to Him. And so if He has spoken to us, if He has given us instruction, if He said do this and don't do that, believe this and don't believe that, then, then we have a responsibility, whether we like it or not, whether we personally feel like we agree with that, whether it sits well with us or not, we have a responsibility to submit to the Word of God. It's final. It's the authority of God if it's His Word. Now, there's one more thing, and, and this is one attribute of Scripture that we're going to focus on here this morning that, that is really so often neglected, and that is its sufficiency. That's what we want to focus on. Look at verse number 17. What is, what is the result of God having spoken? Okay, the, the verse 16 is telling us what the Word of God is. What is Scripture? It's, it's the breathed out Word of God. It's the spoken Word of God. It, it tells us it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness or training in righteousness. But what is the result in verse 17 of God having spoken? Well, the result is this. So that, it's giving us the purpose really of God speaking, that the man of God... I think most fully, most directly, I think that's talking about those who are in the role of, of pastors, those who are leading, but by implication, it would be any Christian then, right? That, that, that the Christian may be complete, equipped for every good 
work. No, notice there are a few things that, that are said, that is said here. Number one, we're, we're complete. If you have the Word of God, one of the things that the Word of God does is that it completes you. Now that word can mean to fill up, to complete, or to finish. It, it can have the idea of completing a time period. You know, you have seven years in prison. You, you get done with it. You've completed it. Hopefully you don't have seven years in prison. But, uh, or to finish a job. They've completed the task. It, it can also have the idea, and I think this is what it means here, it can have the idea that something is lacking and you fill it up. The, a cup is there and it's empty and you fill it up with water. You complete it. You, you fill it. I think that's what it's saying here. The person who has the Word of God, because God has spoken, He's inspired it. He's given us a Word that is, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Because we have that, then we are complete. There's nothing lacking. We're, we're not missing anything. The, the man of God, the minister, or the follower of Jesus Christ is incomplete, but then God powerfully speaks, and when He does, He gives the Christian everything that he or she needs. If, if you have a Bible this morning, you're not lacking anything uh, in terms of spiritual guidance. You don't need any more insight or, or better instruction, as we so often think. Well, that's what the, uh, I just wish I would have something else that, that could give me some more instruction about this. And then he not only says we're complete, but he says we're equipped for every good work. This word equipped means that you have everything you need for a task. There are actually two words here uh, that, that are translated equipped in, in a single word. And, and that they both express the same idea. Therefore, it really means that this person is well equipped. They are thoroughly equipped. In fact, the King James, I think, translates it that way. They're thoroughly equipped for every good work. One person says this, the, the word describes a man who is perfectly adapted for his task. You ever gone to a job before and you don't have all the tools that you need? You don't have everything you need to do the job. You're not equipped for it. Or maybe you don't have the training. But, but when we have the word of God as Christians, you are not just equipped, not just adequately equipped. You are thoroughly equipped for every good work. And what is the task? And I've just said it. What, what is the task for which we are equipped? For every good work. And so the, this idea of good work is just a broad term. Any, anything that God wants us to do, anything that God requires us to do, it's any good task that God sets before us. And He doesn't just say that you're equipped for some good works, but notice it says that you're equipped, well-equipped, thoroughly equipped for how, what kind of good works? How many good works? Every good work. What this means is that there's nothing that God expects you to do. There's nothing that God requires of you. There's nothing that you need in life, really, in terms of guidance and direction in any facet of your life that the Bible does not equip you to do in a way that glorifies God. Well, How does Scripture equip us? Well, it tells us everything that we need to know to give glory to God in, in every dimension of our life. Just stop and think about that. If, we, if we're, as I've already said, to glorify God in whatever we do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, then you can be sure of this. You can be sure of this. If that's what God requires of you as a believer, then be sure of this. He has told you everything you need to know about how to glorify Him in whatever you do. 
So in terms of whether we're talking about parenting or whether we're talking about marriage or whether we're talking about work or finances, whatever category, whatever sphere of life, whatever facet or dimension of your life, He has told you everything that you need to know to live in a way that glorifies Him. You're complete. You're well-equipped for every good work. He's not left you unsure of any crucial things that you should believe or important truth that we need to, to, to know to be able to bring glory to Him. Scripture provides all the knowledge of God and all the guidance for your life that you need. Have you ever been to a job when you've sort of been unsure, uh, less than certain about what was expected of you? or how to go about it. Have you, have you ever had that experience? I, I've been there once or twice. You get a job and they don't really train you very thoroughly. Maybe there's a boss that's sort of unorganized and doesn't have everything together. And so, you know, he just drops you off. So, okay, this is what I want you to do. And then you get in there like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Now this is different. I mean, I, I thought I would know, but he doesn't told me. He hasn't left me all the tools. He hasn't trained me how to do this. Man, what, what do I do? That, that person is not equipped, but listen. This is what this passage is telling us. No, no. God has equipped you. He hasn't left you in the dark about how to have a God-glorifying marriage. He hasn't left you in the dark about how to parent or, or any of these things or how we should operate as a church. He has well equipped us, thoroughly equipped us. He, we are complete. We have everything that we need in the Word of God. God has not left us without light in, in crucial areas of our life. Do you need, uh, do you need more info about, uh, or insight about the kind of marriage that brings glory to God? Do you need better instruction about how to be an employee or an employer? Do you need more information about how to be a mom or dad who brings glory to God? Do you need more light than the Bible gives uh, about how to glorify God through your depression and anxiety? Do you need a church guru to tell you how to be a, a church that brings glory to God? Do, do we need a clear explanation about how to deal with conflict in our life? No, no. The, the answer to all of those is a resounding no. You, ha you are complete and equipped for every one of those areas in, in your life. This doctrine of sufficiency means that we're not just equipped in terms of religious things. See, that's what a lot of people think. Well, the Bible is true. It's, it's our authority. It's the Word of God. And it's, and it's clear and all of those things. It's trustworthy. God inspired it. But it just has to do with like church and religious things and spiritual things. It, it doesn't really have to do with, you know, Monday morning when I punch the clock or, or, or uh, you know, when I, when I go home to my wife and, and kids. It, it doesn't really give me a whole lot of insight or, or direction. But, but what this is teaching us is, is that, no, the, the sufficiency of Scripture uh, assumes that, that the Bible is speaking to a broad array uh, of issues. The Bible tells us, uh, to believe in Jesus. It tells us about religious matters and so on, but no, no, it tells us much more than that as well. Think of some of the specific illustrations uh, that the Bible gives to us. It, it doesn't just tell us about how to get to heaven. A lot of people would say that. They would assume, yeah, the Bible tells us how to get to heaven, but it also tells us how to live here on earth. The Bible doesn't just tell us about our Heavenly Father. It does that, but it also tells us how we can be fathers who glorify God. The Bible doesn't just tell us how to act in church, but how to act at work. The Bible doesn't just tell us about King Jesus, uh, but it does that for sure, and gloriously so. We're, we're thankful that it does. 
But it also gives us light about how we should interact with, with earthly leaders here. The Bible has much to say. In fact, everything we need to know about money, sex, psychological problems, work, marriage, dating, parenting, and church life. It provides sufficient guidance to know how to deal with unkind people or unruly kids. It provides guidance for a sex life of, of married couples. It gives truth uh, that would speak to ma matters like eating disorders and anger, lust, and laziness. It gives us instruction that can help guide us when we're, we have an unreasonable boss or a cantankerous neighbor. It gives counsel for those dealing with sickness and suffering. Wherever you are in life, no, no matter the situation, the Bible is a sufficient guide for you. This is why Psalm 119 can say this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Right? That's what it, that's what it means here. It's, oh, this is our religious book. If we want to know something about God, we can go get that. No, 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 no. This is a book that I take with me and it provides light for my path. Every day as I'm walking, every day as I'm following the Lord, wherever I go, whatever issues I encounter, the Word of God provides insight. It provides light. That's what the metaphor of light is, right? It, it gives insight into this area. So it, it's a light for all of my, my life. For every path that, that I go down, it, it gives me what I need. One person in talking about sufficiency said this, what do you see when you look at your Bible? Do you see a book crammed with relevance? Do you see a book out of which God burst as He speaks to matters in daily life? Is your Bible packed with application to real problems of real people in the real world, inexhaustible, immediate, diverse, flexible? Or is the Bible relatively thin when it comes to addressing human struggles? Another person says this, the doctrine of sufficiency argues that the Bible is intensely, richly active, governing and interpreting every aspect of our lives, even at the end of the 20th century. Well, this is important because if we're seeking to build a community where we're living for the glory of God and exhorting and encouraging one another to glorify God, then, then we need a guide. We don't need just my opinions or your opinions. We don't need standards that, that we make up ourselves. We need an all-sufficient guide to help us and, and give us the guidance that, that we need. If we're going to be a people who glorify God, then we need to be a people of the book. We must see it as a rich and diverse and abundant feast of wisdom for our souls. This is why I was glad Jared read earlier. This is why the psalmist talks about it. Could, could you talk about the Bible in this way? You can only talk about the Bible in the way that I'm about ready to read if you see it as sufficient. As you, if you see it like that, like Pallison says, that it's crammed packed with applications that are diverse and rich for every dimension, every facet of your life. Only if you see the Bible in that way can you say what the psalmist says in 119.29. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. That's what the psalmist said. You, you think the psalmist was like, well, I'm going to put my Bible down. I, I got it for Sunday and I read it at church and then I put it down and it doesn't really impact my life. It doesn't really give me guidance for how to deal with every situation. No, the psalmist was somebody that was, as, as he says in other places, he's meditating on the Word of God day and night. 
He's not just doing that as sort of some religious practice, like, like, like a monk who would just sit there and clear his mind and just think about the Word of God. No, he's meditating on the Word of God because it's interacting with his everyday life. He's seeking guidance from the Word of God. He, he's thinking, I'm, I'm faced with this enemy. I'm faced with this situation. I've got this going on in my life. What does the Word of God say? I need to meditate on it. I need to go to the Word because I need wisdom from God and God has spoken it and, and it's got everything that I need and so I just need to go to it I need to I need to mine it for the truth that will be relevant and important in this particular situation or how about Psalm 19 that Jared read earlier Psalm 19 7 the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Does the Bible rejoice your heart? You know, one of the things that gives us joy is, man, when you don't know what to do, when you're lost, when you don't have the direction that you need, and then somebody comes along and says, hey, this is the right way. This, this is what you need. Oh, thank you so much. I had no idea what I was doing. Your help has been so invaluable. Thank you for instructing me. Thank you for teaching me. There's a joy that comes as a result of that. And that's what the psalmist has experienced. Your, your Word, it, it gives joy. It gives joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here's this another one of these statements that tells us that the psalmist had a, a, a view of Scripture and of God's Word that was it was a sufficient Word. It, it was a Word that gave light for everything that he did. He says this, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Like the Word of God is so great. It gives me what I need. It, it provides direction. It provides insight. When I have the Word of God, I'm not lost. When I have the Word of God, I'm not in the dark. When I have the Word of God, I'm not clueless. I have what I need. To be a church that brings glory to God, we must, be, we must see the Bible as a totally sufficient guide for our life. What, what is your first impulse when you're having trouble with your children, or you're having marital problems, or you're struggling with a coworker, or you're thinking about finances, or you're dealing with anger, or whatever it is, what, what is your first impulse? What well, ought to be, if you have a view of the sufficiency of Scripture, it, it ought to be, I've got to go to the Word. What does God say about this? I need to hear, maybe I've heard it before. But I need to hear it again. I need guidance. I need direction. And I love the Word of God because I know it is true. It is inspired by God. It is His Word to me in this moment, in my trial, in my suffering, in this difficulty. God's Word is going to speak to me. I know it. And He will provide guidance for me. And because of that, I love it. It's sweeter. I wouldn't trade the Word of God for all the gold in the world. It's sweeter than, than the sweetest honey. It is it is precious to me because it provides guidance to me in all that I do. It is, as Peter said in 1 Peter 1-2, the, the knowledge of God is what gives us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. Well, that's the, the one dimension. What I want to do is kind of 
set up a fence. I, I want us to have a rich, full view of God but, but, and the Word of God. Uh, but, but secondly, what I want us to see is that the Bible, as rich and as full as it is, does not tell us everything about life. And if we're going to be a community that has accountability, we need that standard. But, but we've got to realize uh, that, that the Bible, sometimes we, we can deny the sufficiency of Scripture in two ways. One is by sort of neglecting what I've just been saying, to see the Bible as just sort of just strictly about maybe the way of salvation, just strictly about God and theology proper, not really having a lot of application in my everyday life. But, but the second way that we can deny the sufficiency of Scripture is that when we go beyond Scripture and we seek to establish our own opinions using Scripture, we, we go to try to take our convictions and our personal preferences and say, this is the truth that everyone needs to believe, and, and we seek to slap a verse on it to, to make it the standard, to make our opinion the standard and to back it with the Word of God. There is a richness to God's Word. It reveals everything we need to know and everything God wants us to know. But what I want us to see in this second point is that there is a limitation to God's Word. Not because God is limited, but because He has limited His Word. There is a limitation to God's Word in that it reveals everything we need to know and, it, and it, everything that God wants us to know you see it just depends on which word you're emphasizing there it, the richness is that it gives everything that we need to know and everything that God wants us to know but the limitation is that it gives us everything we need to know and everything God wants us to know there's there's a limitation God doesn't tell us everything he doesn't give us answers to every question that that we might have and so we've got to be careful that we don't come on the other side and deny the sufficiency by saying, look, we need a standard here. We need to say that this is wrong and God didn't say it in His Word. And so I've got to take this verse and try to make people think that this is wrong so that I can tell people how wrong this is and I can have the backing of God's Word to, to prove that. We want to avoid what we might call the trap of the, the legalists. Legalists are no notorious for trying to use the Word of God to establish their own personal convictions. Which is what Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees in His day. In Matthew 5, 15, 7, He said, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This, this is the truth. And you need to obey this. You need to believe this. You need to submit to this. Let me give you an illustration. Some things that maybe I grew up with. And uh, one of them, I grew up around some people who believed that playing cards was wrong. And they, they took a verse out of Thessalonians that says, avoid, in the King James, avoid every appearance of evil. Really, the, the right translation in, in our day and time would be, uh, avoid every form of evil. Avoid anything that is evil. Every form of it, right? But, but that way, the way it's translated, avoid every appearance of evil, it gives the idea or the connotation that, that anything that even looks like evil, you need to avoid. So don't just avoid evil. Avoid things that look like evil. They appear to be evil, but really is not what the meaning of that, that text is. But they, they took from that and they said, well, playing cards, I mean, people gamble when they play cards and, and sometimes there's a lot of other evil and wicked things that go along with card playing. And so because 
you know, even though you might be playing go fish or, or you might be playing rummy or you might be playing uh, euchre or whatever it is, people will think that, you know, you, you look like maybe you're doing something evil because you're playing with, with cards. You see how we can take the Word of God and we can twist it in order to establish our personal conviction. And that's a way that we deny uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. Listen, if God wanted to tell you that playing cards was wrong, God could have spoken and clearly made that point in His Word, but He didn't. So we don't need to come behind it and try to establish uh, some point by taking a verse out of context and twisting it to, to make up this rule that is uh, not part of the Word of God. Well, it isn't just fundamentalists and legalists who do that. If we're not careful... We can find ourselves going to Scripture all the time to affirm our personal convictions and preferences. You know, if you take the Bible and you twist it and you take it out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you take it out of context. So there are issues like the style of worship music. We haven't really had big fights about that in our church, but many churches have had, that's been a, a big fight. And people go to the Word of God and say, look, we need to sing the old hymns. And they'll find scriptures that, that seem to imply something along the idea that we need to stick with the old paths or something like that. You know, well, well hymns are good, but there's nothing in the Word of God that says that we can't sing modern contemporary songs as well. We can do this with our political views as, as well. We can seek to establish our political views as the right political views based on the Word of God when God has not clearly spoken on particular issues. There are views on education, homeschooling or public school or Christian school. Uh, what does the Word of God say about that? I'll leave you in limbo. Now, it doesn't say whether we should do homeschooling or Christian school or public school. Guess what? You can have a, a personal conviction about that. And if you feel God leading you in a particular direction, certainly you're going to be informed by some truths that you find in Scripture. You'll be informed by those, and you'll have to make an informed decision. Uh, but what we've got to be careful is coming down and saying, listen, because God's Word says this, then, then we ought to homeschool, or we ought to send our kids to Christian school, or we, we ought to send our kids to public school so that they can be a light in, in the community. No, no, that's a, that's a personal preference that's a personal conviction certainly certainly enlightened by the word of God but God has not clearly spoken on that matter we can do this in our personal relationships when we have some some disagreement or some conflict we we immediately want to go to the word of God and marshal out texts that we think support us whether those texts want to come along or not uh, and we want to say see I was right Right? We don't have any desire to really know what the Word of God says. We don't really have any desire to, to make sure that what the Bible is, what we're saying the Bible says is, is what it says. We just want to have sort of buttress our, our opinion and, and, and our view and throw us a few Bible verses on it to make it sound right. Well, we need to be very, very careful about that. Listen to some of the repeated warnings of Scripture. We don't want to take away from the Word of God. And, and deny its sufficiency in that way, but we don't want to add to the Word of God and deny its sufficiency in that way either. Listen to what God says in Deuteronomy 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, uh, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. You shall not add to the Word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord. 
Do you see you can deny and not keep the commandments of the Lord either by adding to it or taking away? Both of them are, are dangers. You could see the same is said in Deuteronomy 12.32 or Proverbs 30, verse 6. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. There's a biblical example of this in, in the New Testament. The Corinthian church, uh, they, they had been divided. And one of the things that they were divided about was that certain of them had preferences about which teacher they liked better. Some of them said, I'm, I'm of Paul. I, I think Paul is the best teacher. I think he's right. I think we need to follow him. Others were saying, hey, Apollos, he's, he's the stronger preacher. He has the greater gifting. We, we need to follow him. Some were coming along and saying, hey, I'm of Peter. Right, And there was division. And listen to what Paul does. He, there's a, a long text there, but this is one of the things that he says here in 1 Corinthians 4.6. I have applied all these things. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. You see, the, the differences they were not making, it was not that Apollos was not a faithful preacher. It was not that Paul was not a faithful preacher or, or that somehow that Peter was not preaching the gospel rightly. All of these are gifted, appointed by God, faithful men. And, and they're just making preferences. And, and Paul's saying there, hey, when you do that, you're setting up a standard that's beyond the Word of God. What does the Word of God require of those who are preachers? That they're faithful to the Gospel. That they preach the Word of God faithfully. So when you say, yeah, he preaches faithfully, but I like this style better. And, and I like this personality better. And this delivery is just better. You see what you're doing? You're setting up your personal preferences and you're going beyond the Word of God. Paul's using that in that particular context. But isn't that a truth that we need to, to understand in every dimension of life? That, that we need to be careful that we don't go beyond the Word of God. Don't set up standards in addition to the Word of God. Beyond the Word of God, we have things like preference. Beyond the Word of God, we have style. Beyond the Word of God, we have personal conviction. And there's a place for personal conviction. And, and there's nothing wrong with having a preference either or with liking a certain style. There, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. What's wrong with those things is when we elevate them to the place of Scripture. I like this kind of music. Well, good for you. But that's not what Scripture says. That's, that's not the standard. Or I, I like this kind of preacher. Well, well, okay. But if that's not the kind of preacher that God has led to your church uh, to, to lead you, then that's... That's not a problem, right? Because it's not, you don't want to elevate your personal preferences to the level of the Word of God. We need to be careful not to make our personal convictions that way either. Here, here's the reality you can believe things and be convinced about certain things. Say, for instance, I'll, I'll use one, might be controversial, but the issue of drinking. All right. My personal conviction is that I'm not going to drink. I, I don't think it's good I don't, for, for me personally. I, I don't want to be tempted uh, to, to, to go too far. I just want to avoid that altogether. But we've got to be careful then not to assume that because that's my personal conviction that, that we need to universalize that. Say, And it's always wrong for everyone all the time to drink alcohol. 
The Bible is clear about that. I mean, you only need one verse to see that that's wrong. You only need one story from the life of Jesus, and you have Jesus turning water into wine. And, and guess what? It was wine. And you have the New Testament church at the Lord's table drinking wine, right? And so there, there it is. I mean, we, we're not able to come down and say drinking is always wrong in every circumstance. It just simply is not. You can personally say, I'm not going to drink. And I would, I would encourage you in that direction. I would say that's a wise thing to do. Uh, but we don't need to exalt our personal convictions to the level of Scripture. This is what Paul said on matters of personal conviction. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? This is Romans 14.10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I, say, as I, I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So this is not talking about issues that are clearly morally right and wrong, like committing adultery or, or, or murder or hatred, any of those things that are clearly morally wrong. Paul's talking about here things that are, are debatable, things that God has not clearly spoken about, things that you might have a personal conviction about, but, but that are not something that God has made a clear judgment on. And when he says that, he says, listen, God's the judge. God is, God is their judge. They're going to stand before the Lord. And so let God judge them. You don't worry about making that judgment. If God has left room, or if God has limited His revelation on certain matters, then we need to leave room for others to have personal convictions, opinions, and preferences without assuming sin. Well, this morning, what, what I want us to see is that the Bible is sufficient. And I really do want us to, to become a church that our heartbeat is to live for the glory of God. And if we're going to live for the glory of God, this has got to be a guide for everything that we do. We've got to look to it to guide our feet, to guide every step that we take all the time. Be looking to the Word of God to inform every dimension of our life. And as we do that, we've got to be careful that we don't begin to set up false standards that we don't begin to go beyond the word of god to set up our preferences and our personal convictions for others to live by let's pray this morning our heavenly father we come to you and we do ask you lord that we would grow as a church who gives glory to god we pray uh, that you would give us guidance and direction we pray lord uh, that you would change our desires the reality is lord anytime we sin we're, we're revealing the truth of our heart that we really are not living for your glory. I pray, God, that you would change our hearts, that you would help us to grow in the image of Christ. And as we think about Christ, the one who always did the will of the Father, who always sought your glory above all else, we, we pray that we would be like him. We pray that as we do that, that you would help us look to your word as an all-sufficient guide for our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.